the this morning's and, uh, panel, which is the final panel before we open it for uh, a broader discussion, is called Nationalism, Nationalism et Malaise dans la Culture. And the participants are Emile Mallet, who is director of Passage and Adapes, and we have Georges Ayash, who is not here yet, who is out. Uh, we have Lynn Gamwell, writer, professor, School of Visual Arts, Arts New York. We have Paola Mieli, psychoanalyst, president of Apreku Psychoanalytic Association. And we have Pierre de Sonarclens, who is here from Switzerland, who is pre professor of international relations at UNIL. So uh, we'll start right away. Thank you. Yes, good morning. Uh, Sunday morning in New York is like in Paris. People, they stay for breakfast, but uh, we have to work together. Two years ago, we founded the Freud's Committee with uh, three objectives. We work about three subjects, education, identity, and nationalism. Perhaps uh, the idea of the committee is uh, if we could learn from the past to have an orientation for the future. It's not easy today because education is a very bad situation. We spoke about this yesterday. Identity, we could do <laughs> many things with identity. It's love, it's uh, death, we spoke about this yesterday. And nationalism. Uh, I don't think that nationalism is uh, a close idea. And for this session that I have the pleasure to introduce, we have to think nationalism as a concept in evolution and to confront nationalism with globalization today and with religious extremism today. Because nationalism is not, as I told you, something close. I will say some words about three or four things. What is the weather of civilization today? We don't have world wars like the last century, but we have conflicts, conflicts, conflicts coming. And we don't know if these conflicts are social, economical, political, religious. They are mixed, completely mixed. Some years ago, I wrote a book about this. The name is Al-Qaeda Against Capitalism. I think that Al-Qaeda is also a reaction against capitalism. It's not only a religious extremism, as we have to think about the weather of civilization. 
thinking to Freud, we have to think about the place of the religion in our society, but the place also of the spirituality. What means spirituality today? Because the difference between Marx and Freud with the religion, and I will speak about this, is that Freud is discussing with the religious, but Marx puts the religious outside the discussion. We have also to think what are the therapy, what is the therapy, is a modern therapy against nationalism as if cosmopolitanism is the therapy against nationalism yesterday and today. Now, what is the weather of civilization today? I think we are living in strange times, very strange times. The past two centuries have been marked by the consequences of two revolutions, French revolutions and American revolution. And today, we don't know exactly what means democracy, progress. We don't know if international trade is good for people or not. And our life today is somewhere without ideology. We don't have no communism, no fascism really, and we could not say that uh, extremism, Muslim extremism is fascism. It's something, but we don't know exactly. But what we see in the world, in the peoples, you could also see the same things inside individuals, because people, they consider that today they could do everything, no, no limitless in pleasures, no limitless in needs and desires, and sometimes confusion between needs and desires. And today with uh, internet, with Facebook, Google, other sources of communication, it's impossible to know what is individual, what is private, and what is public. And this is a big problem. It's a big problem. Because there is a failed sentiment. They, uh, the failed sentiment is that the progress of technology could be a progress of humanism. It's not true. If you take the religious people, the Muslim people, the Jewish people, the Christian people, who are very orthodox, they are scotched. They like very much internet, Facebook, and all these things. As it's a big problem, that the progress of technology today is not a human progress. It's a facility for work. Sometimes it's a facility for love, because many <laughs> linkage. 
but we are not sure today that the progress of science, the progress of technology, is the progress of humanity. What is happening today is not new. The man, like niche man, it's not true. I found in a poem of Baudelaire, everybody knows Baudelaire here, he spoke about the idea of God with his omnipotence and omniscience. This is the portrait of the homo economicus modern today. He thinks that he has all the power, like a God-man today. And this, if you take what is happening in Middle East, the ideal of some killers come from this. They consider themselves with the omnipotence and the omniscience of God. That is the portrait of our civilization today. The psychoanalysts know when they have patients on their sofa. I think that uh, Dr. Nersessian has one day Mr. Madoff in his cabinet. And the speculators, the modern traders, they are typical of uh, style, life. They don't know where they live. They don't know what is the moment for life, what is the moment for work, what is the moment for love. They are all the time moving. And we have the same thing in the civilization today. We have connections between religion and populism. We have connections between nationalism and patriotism. It's not so easy to separate patriotism to nationalism. For example, flags on windows. Is it patriotism or is it nationalism? Today, what happens in France, we put flags on the windows. Two months ago, three months ago, it was a nationalist expression. Today, it's a humanist expression. As we have to think the nationalism in confrontation with the civilization and with the modern standards. Alors, we are in a civilization which is going with advances and regresses. I am not going here to substitute myself as a pope or any government in establishing a, an intangible political prognostic about nationalism. More realistically, I think we have to refer uh, to the Freud works and what Freud said about the radiance of a culture and education in our life. 
Zeta, the topics of the freight committee. We are coming from this and we are going in this way. For himself, Freud was against nationalism. He wrote, national exaltation is a feeling that I am obliged to qualify as disastrous as, and unfair. This is the philosophy. But personally, he was an European and he stayed an European. He knows that European was not only the country of alignment. He was living in Vienna and he knows that in Vienna it was anti-Semitism, populism, nationalism and all these things. As he knows that this subject is a part of the life. He knows this. But he tried to understand this not in staying in the moment but he tried to understand what is happening in other civilization, Greek, Egyptian, Roman, in the Bible. And what he finds? He finds what we say yesterday. I have a citation of Freud here. He wrote about this. Death is a mate of love. Together they rule the world. I think that with this sentence we could understand what is today happening inside our world. As my question for this session, is to understand what we could do against nationalism. Is the cosmopolitanism a therapy against nationalism? We could think so, but the German civilization during, at the beginning of the Second War, La République de Weimar, was a very enlightened civilization. And what happens 10, 20 years after, it was the Nazi civilization. As we are not sure that there is a model of civilization against nationalism, we could only think about two subjects, to introduce love and to introduce cosmopolitanism in our civilization. And we could not be sure that the science progress is enough to struggle the nationalism. We have to live with this. We have, we have to consider and to discuss all the times with religions, with spirituality, and we have to don't consider that uh, the war of civilization is happening today. 
I think there is a battle of inside every civilization. If we take the Muslim world, they are inside the Muslim world a battle. They don't know exactly how to confront to globalization. In the Christian, we have the same problem. In the Jewish, we have the same problem. Israel is also in the same problem. But we have to know that what happens today, it's not different than what happened at the beginning of last century. Last century, the intellectuals like Freud, Einstein, and uh, Schnitzler, uh, everybody, they have the same problem. They have to be proud of their culture, proud of the civilization, and however, they tried to be out of the nationalism. It was a big problem. And remember what happened during this time. In one side is Freud with Anna Arendt, exactly against the nationalism. In the other side was Heidegger and Hugues. They were in the nationalism. And they are all are intellectuals or are big intellectuals and however. Alors, what happened, what is yesterday? I remember yesterday with Ed Robbins. This is a point interesting. At, at this time, Freud said, I am not Austrian, I am not German, I am also Jewish. As he took Jewish identity as a sense of humanity and not as a religious sense. He do, it was the same view with Steven Zweig, it was the same view with Anna Arendt. They consider that they have to be outside the nation at this time, because the nation was completely foolish. Alors we don't, I think that we don't consider that patriotism could be the solution. There is no solution. We have to struggle every day, every minute, and to stay in a, an, in, in a way universality. This is our uh, project, and it is a project of the Freud Committee. Thank you. And now it's, uh, we, give, we begin this panel. Alors, the first. Lynn Gamwell, you are writer, professor, School of Visual Arts in New York. Yes, I'm, I'm a historian, and I'll follow your theme of studying the past to understand the present. I, uh, you're all familiar with, as you mentioned, that Freud collected antiquities from Egypt and um, classical civilization. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to just describe a few, and I brought a cast of one to show you, <laughs> okay? Yeah, he began, Freud began collecting in the 1890s, and he assembled a collection of, of several thousand objects. Um, he, throughout his 
and, and throughout his writing from the 1890s until his death, he makes the analogy between psychoanalysis, digging in the past and the memories and reconstructing the history of the patient and an archaeologist baking, uh, uh, digging up buried fragments and reconstructing the history of a city. Right? I'll read you uh, one, uh, one quote from him from the 1890s. Thus it came to be, uh, thus it came about in this first full-length analysis of hysteria that I arrived at a procedure of clearing away psychological material layer by layer, and we like to compare it to the technique of excavating a buried city. That's from Studies in Hysteria. If, if you've been to um, uh, the, the Freud Museum in London, or if you've seen photographs, you know that Freud organized his, the, his collection, or, or about 30 objects, like an audience on his desk. Uh, and, it, 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 and he wrote by hand. And it just reminded me, he, he thought of himself as writing for the ages, not for the contemporary anti-Semitic medical community in Vienna, you know, but for the Chinese scholar, for Osiris, the god of the underworld. Yeah, in, in, the, front, in the center, he, he didn't collect Asian antiquities. They were given to him as gifts, but he kept them. And he featured them in his collection. In the center of his desk is a scholar's screen. No, it's a, um, with a jade scholar, a uh, Chinese scholar, in the center of it. In the front of that, he put his favorite piece, a statue of Athena, <laughs> goddess of wisdom and war. He was a fighter. <laughs> also on his desk, he had Osiris, okay, god of the underworld, and then a smaller statue of his wife, Isis, suckling little Horus, her baby. <laughs> okay. And he, he, in the legend of, of Osiris, in the legend, as you recall, Osiris was killed by his brother Seth, who was jealous. And he dismembered his body, scattered the body of Osiris uh, down the Nile River. Many women would have given up if her husband was dead and dismembered, but not Isis. She got her own boat, traveled down the Nile, found the pieces, put them back together, and assembled the first mummy. It's our legend. And then she magically conceived a child and raised little Horus, who we've seen, seen suckling uh, on this in this statue, to avenge the death of his father, which he did. And for Freud, these stories retold. They, he looks to these stories because they, they're retellings and they're the essence of human emotions, love, jealousy, sibling rivalry, marital devotion, revenge. <laughs> Another figure, it's a baboon of thought. Okay? It sits in the corner of Freud's desk. It's a little marble baboon, okay? very animal looking if you've seen it. And, and it has in the top of it a half moon, okay? It's a deity of Thoth, okay? And he, so he combines, Thoth is, uh, he combines the lower animal deity, okay, with the sophisticated intellectual who Thoth. Thoth is the, uh, traditionally the inventor of hieroglyphics. 
And as such, the baboon of thought, it reminds us that our animal passions underlie our higher intellectual pursuits. It's represented by thought. And the baboon of thought was all, Freud also liked it because it was the, the, the baboon of thought featured as the uh, judge in the weighing of the heart ceremony after death. Okay, after the body was dismembered and the parts put in jars, uh, the baboon of thought was the judge of whether the deceased, not whether he'd been good or bad, but whether he told the truth. The little sphinx, um, and this I brought you a, um, <laughs> I don't want to un- get unplugged here. All right. um, this, is a, this, this is a cast of Freud's, one that's uh, in Freud's study. So it's, so it's a cast, like a museum reproduction. Uh, it's a, uh, the original is terracotta, uh, sphinx, Hellenistic. It's from the um, second century B.C., Okay. And so Freud owned this and about six other sphinxes. He has a black figure uh, vase that's uh, Oedipus on the Sphinx. Okay. Um, anyway, and, and he, Freud collected these because he felt that the myth of Oedipus and the Sphinx, as told by the playwright Sophocles, that it captured a stage in child development of little boys. And this is a quote from Freud. This is a letter to Fleece in uh, the 1890s. I found in my own case, too, being in love with my mother and jealous of my father. And now I consider it a universal event in early childhood. If, though, we can understand the gripping power of Sophocles' Oedipus Rex and why we all appreciate this statue, the timelessness of these stories and what they tell us about the human condition and history. The, the couch in, in, uh, in Vienna, and you have photographs, you have the, all the Engelmann photographs downstairs in your library, I I'm, see. <laughs> um, and, and if you recall, over the couch, there's a, uh, there's a uh, print. It's a very, the original is a very colorful print. It still exists in London. Um, of uh, Abu Sembel, you know, the, the Raqqa temple. And it's it's a remind you know so he it's a reminder of uh, Freud's wordplay and love of worth that this temple that cuts deep into Mother Earth is a that the tra- the the, uh, the name translates father symbol Abu from the Hebrew for father and symbol the German for symbol. And Freud studied history mythology archaeology as a way of understanding his patience and the politics of his time, you know, as you've said so well. Yeah. And today it's important for us as educators, (laughs) we're both teachers at the the School of Visual Arts, and the the others of you are teachers, to teach the lessons of history. Throughout his long life, Freud continued to make this analogy. And I'm going to end with a quote from the end of his life on the analogy between archaeology, studying the past, and psychoanalysis. The first quote I gave you was from 1890s. This is from 1937, the very end of his life. And he came to feel at the end of his life he was even in a better condition than archaeologists. They were dealing just with desiccated, dead material. Things had been buried. 
and his patient was right there alive, right there before him. He could keep trying to get more information. Okay, and this, this is uh, Freud, 1937. The psychoanalyst's work of construction resembles to a great extent an archaeologist's excavation of some dwelling place that's been destroyed and buried. The two processes are, in fact, identical, except that the analyst works under better conditions and has more material at his command to assist him because what he's working with is still alive. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I think that your dis the discussion with your work is very important because uh, you say that for Freud, archaeology was uh, perhaps more important than psychology. Oh, no. <laughs> no, but you, you said, because I remember uh, two days or one day before he left Vienna to Paris, uh, somebody asked him, uh, are you free? No, that you are living. And he said, not, I am not free until my antiques are living with me to London. What do you think? Why he was so, uh, he has a so strong linkage with his antiques and he, he wanted that all his antiques could travel with him as, some, as the matter of his work. Why he was so pregnant with this? <laughs> well, but he, all, he was a realist. They're beautiful objects, and he, uh, he lived with them for so long, and he purchased each himself. Each one he, he took to the curator of antiquities at the Kunsthistorisches Museum and had it authenticated. He was very fussy about it, about the authenticity. Uh, but he was a realist. And you recall, he asked the, the person who was going to help him get the antiquities out, Marie Bonaparte, she, a Gentile woman of wealth who could get them. He's, he was a realist and said he, that he might not have them all and asked her to smuggle one out. And, and she dropped in her purse the little figure of Athena. And he said, if, if I'm going to die without these, I'd like her with me. She put it in her purse and he and gave it back to him. And, and she was able to get the whole collection out. Uh, but, in, and he was ha so happy to have it surrounded. But he was a realist too about the times. But yeah. today, a person who, has, who is a collectioner, you think that uh, it's to, to have some eternity to put them in front of him in a desk, in a house? Yeah. Why? Well, let's go to, to Freud again. Freud almost never wrote about his collection. He said one thing about it that I ever found was that what, what was it to collect? He said, but the collector has a surplus of libido and he puts it into objects, a love of things. No, that, that, that it's, a, it's like a love of a person, 
but, uh, but it, there, there's an attachment to it, a surplus of libido. And you yeah. said also that the emotions, uh, he confronts emotions of antique statues with emotions of his passions. And he, and from this is coming the reflection, no? Yeah, and, and in, 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 I think the analogy is more the history of the object with the history of his patient. No, some would say, well, his, there's nothing the matter with his patient. And he would say, no, it's a fragment. It's from somewhere. There's a story behind it. Somebody and, made her. <laughs> and coming no. now to nationalism. Yeah. Do you think uh, the extreme right in many countries, they consider that the modern is against history and what is happening? Uh, yeah. Do you think that it's true? Well, the... Do you think that the modern life, the globalization is something without history, without past? Uh, do you think that the critique is founded when the extreme right is saying that uh, the modern people, they don't understand history, they don't have respect for these things? Yes, of, of course. I mean, that, 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 that part of our in par, inter, problems internationally are a, a lack of knowledge of history. We have people destroying history, destroying objects from this time frame in the Near East today, as you know. And it's a, uh, it's a lack of understanding of history, but also whoever's, you know, the people that are doing that know the power of history. That's why they want to destroy these temp the temples. You know, it's a way of destroying the influence of the West in Syria to destroy these temples. Um, so as, as a teacher, we need to understand it. And why throughout history, people who have been conquerors have smashed the statues and, and torn down the buildings. And, and that in the end, we're all one people, as Freud knew. That's why he had on his desk, Egyptian, Greek, Chinese. It's all about the same humanity and to teach that lesson. Yeah. Do you say one word about Freud's writing? Because you mentioned it at first as an art. Ed Robbins, could you speak from here? Yes. Yeah. You mentioned Freud's writing. Uh-huh. His calligraphy, right? Oh, yeah. As an art. Can you say something about that? Uh, well, I don't know that I could. <laughs> uh, um, he just he wrote, wrote longhand. You know, and he, he, it's yeah. incredible, his style, right? I have, I have spent a thousand hours with it at the Library of Congress. Yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah, I wouldn't say it. It's, an, it's extremely difficult to, to, you know, once you learn to read it. Um, uh, I don't actually see it that way. Um, not, it's, I mean, not like, in, in, not like Chinese calligraphy. I mean, that's done as an art form. It's done as to make the body and the mind as one, okay? I mean, I think, I mean, it's just a sign of his time that he wrote by hand, um, you know, rather than using a typewriter. <laughs> I mean, I would think of that, that more. Um, yeah. Professor I hope I don't Lothar. disappoint you. <laughs> well, first I want to say we're having a wonderful morning of very stimulating ideas as from the very beginning. 
And I want to congratulate the French committee and Dr. Nersessian for getting together all this assembly of people. Um, what I want to ask you, uh, Emile, is whether you would like to consider one more aspect of what you're discussing, i.e. the concept of power. Since you mentioned Friedrich Nietzsche and the Superman, I think the uh, missing thing in Freud is power. He uh, couldn't deal with it because of his own reasons, with issues of power and control over the movement. But I think uh, if you want to understand nationalism and what it does, is that these people are drunk with power. And this is true of them and of the Nazis. The enlightened world also has issues with power. So I think uh, I would like for you to consider adding it to our project of teaching about the issues that we have today, as we had all through civilization, with power. And to Lynn, I'd, ask, uh, I'd like you to ask, you, you must have considered that too, we had here a pro program uh, way back with Philoctetes about Freud's Gradiva. And Gradiva is also a very important piece in his collection, mm -hmm. the, the bas-relief and mm -hmm. how it influenced his thinking. And apropos history, there was one philosopher in England, R.G. Collingwood, who connected historical research and historical understanding with archaeology in a very important way. Yes, an answer to Henri about power. <coughs> uh, when you regard the modern history for last century, there is some nationalism who arrive, who succeed. For example, like Zionism. Uh, if you confront what is writing about Zionism by Martin Buber, Gershom Scholem, Sigmund Freud, he wrote about Zionism. All of them they consider that Zionism could be universal, could be something for elevation spirit. And they were, all of them, against the nationalism. But is it possible that power could succeed without nationalism? It's a big problem. I don't think it's a possibility to do. And uh, it's exactly the same for all ideologies, all communism. At the beginning, communism was power without nationalism, at the beginning, as an idea. But it was the same in, everywhere. But when we confront uh, the idea with passage act, it's different. As we could not say that nationalism is a, a way of construction of something. It's what is coming when you, you go to passage act, you confront this thing, you know? As we could, it's a big problem. 
And it's why we say that intellectuals are not in the reality somewhere, because they uh, are in anticipation of something, but when something uh, arrives, they are outside the processus. At the beginning, for example, the Sionism, Ben-Gurion, was exactly in the same position of Martin Buber. And after, he changed completely. And, uh, but uh, there is a French writer who is not specially in favor of Israel. He was director of uh, review, left Christian review, Esprit. He said something very interesting. He said, don't consider Zionism different of the other ideologies. It's same. It's same. They need to have a construction of ideas, but from this construction to the state is different. That maybe, is a big problem. Maybe we should do the yeah, afterwards. And then because we have time afterwards for everybody to participate and ask questions and interact yes. with... Because, uh, Perhaps I mean, Lynn have a, an answer to what... Uh, no, small I answer and yeah. after I give you. Yeah. I don't have. <laughs> yeah, no, we I don't, don't have an answer. Okay. Yeah. Alors, we, yeah. we could follow. Alors, no, it's Paola Mieli, psychoanalyst. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to this uh, colloquium, which I find very productive. And I want to thank in particular uh, uh, the Committee Freud, uh, the New York Psychoanalytic Society, and uh, Dr. Nassessian for organizing this event. Uh, I'm going to try to extrapolate from uh, um, my thinking for this uh, uh, encounter a few points. Um, I have to say that when I was invited to reflect upon uh, nationalism and fundamentalism, I realized that uh, uh, the, um, the topic is uh, immense. That is practically, uh, the more you read about it, the more you try to reflect upon it, uh, the more uh, you are led someplace else, because uh, it's a very extensive question, and as uh, um, Emile Mallet was saying before, you know, um, the very notion of nationalism is a, is a, is a notion in progress, is a, is a flux. So um, it's difficult to tackle. But I'm going to extrapolate a few points in order to try to find a little bit of a structure for us to think about uh, these topics together, right? Um, the first thing that came to my mind when I thought uh, um, about uh, this particular question of fundamentalism is actually, uh, you know, uh, pictures that I saw in uh, uh, October 2001 of demonstrators that in uh, Bangladesh that were part of an anti-U.S. protest and that they were carrying uh, banners with Osama bin Laden picture on them. Except that in these banners, you know, on the, on the back of uh, uh, Osama bin Laden's shoulders were appearing bird. That is to say, the Muppets from Sesame Street, which is a very, very popular, uh, you know, children uh, TV transmission in the United States. 
So it was uh, uh, very surprising to see that uh, the West public enemy number one was shown alongside a children character that is loved by the American media and that is a spoken voice of American values. And it seemed to me very significant because uh, uh, if uh, all fundamentalism, and I think that this is a point that we have to underline, all fundamentalism share protesting and reacting against change, resisting modernization, secularization, that they regard as the threat to the very roots of their cultural identity. As this uh, example shows, in fact, the contamination they are resisting so furiously has already happened, has already always happened. Because uh, fundamentalists are, in fact, an integral part of the world that they condemn. And this is uh, a number one point that I want to stress. Um, and given the fact that fundamentalists consider themselves being the guardian of a certain orthodoxy that is bound to a certain identity, this brings about us back to the question of uh, identity, but I would say in particular to the question of cultural identity. Yesterday we discussed the question of identity. We didn't you know, spend much time on the question of cultural identity that in my view is a uh, structurally to connect it to the notion of a nation. It is historically connected to the very birth of uh, the idea of nations, of modern nation, which we have to differentiate from you know, the old notions of, of uh, you know, nations, let's put it this way, you know, states, etc. So uh, the question of cultural identity, um, which should be threatened according to fundamentalists. And okay, by cultural identity, obviously, we uh, make reference to a certain specific cultural baggage that uh, is given to a social group, which mostly shares the same language, but includes tradition, experiences, values, uh, know-how that are uh, related to a particular you know, um, social exchange, in particular geographical environment. This idea of cultural identity, as I was saying, is connected with uh, the modern no notion of nation, which, as uh, 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 Dr. Malay was uh, uh, pointing out, uh, uh, concerns, uh, you know, it, it's, it's an idea that, uh, uh, you know, is grown together with the major revolutions of uh, the 18th century, and that leads to the legal adoption of natural law, right? which implies a state whose power is not long, any longer absolute, but is limited. That is to say, a new notion of the state, which is uh, the state uh, you know, uh, founded on the rights of men, where the state is considered as a function of the individual, and the individual is no, no, no longer considered as a function of the state. So we see that the notion of cultural identity is by its very nature, nature in flux. Hmm? Uh, 
cultural identity maintain an unstable equilibrium between tradition and transformation constantly, right? And uh, as, uh, as we were saying, uh, every uh, notion of identity implies, uh, I'm not going to go now on the uh, psychoanalytical approach of the notion of identity, which I find, though, extremely significant for, uh, for the understanding of this issue, but uh, just to say it in few words, uh, the process, the operational identification in psychoanalysis uh, uh, indicates how identification relies structurally on, on an alienation. Um, you know, the emergence of the ego, of the I, of the subject of an assertion necessitates a passage through what Lacan would call in an undefined subject, a reciprocal subject, that is to say, an exchange with the collective, to the point that the collective becomes the very subject of the individual. And obviously, this is very clear when we think about, uh, you know, the very manner in which uh, the newborn baby is uh, basically, um, you know, uh, impacted by the exchange with the other, an exchange with the other that is in this very, you know, uh, time in which is occurring a transmission that is a symbolic and imaginary, uh, a real transmission that uh, implies a certain inscription of uh, pleasure on the body. So, um, uh, I would say that subjective identity in this respect is also a cultural identity by its very nature. But the process of identification is a process that doesn't occur only in childhood, but doesn't cease to develop throughout one's own life according to one's own social life, standing, the historical context in which we live, work, studies, health, and so on and so forth. So in a sense, uh, identity is uh, always, uh, cultural identity is, uh, is always in a, in a state of becoming. Hmm? And therefore includes uh, both a notion of a community of kin and the idea of plurality and difference by definition. So it's both, you know, a you know, uh, community of kin but at the same time, plurality and difference. I think that is very important because every time that we make reference to the idea of cultural identity as if it were a unified concept, a one, it's in fact you know, something that is by definition very far from the notion of a cultural identity because it hypostasizes the idea of sameness. It's somehow brings about a cult of the one that contradicts the very nature of the, the constitution of the subject of language, which by definition is the effect of the collective. So every time that we speak of the a one and sameness as an, a you know, a reference of a identity identification, we are basically you know, contradicting the very nation of this project. So, um, 
uh, I want to just say a word on the question of, uh, uh, because uh, you know, every time that we see in history, and also subjectively, the need, emerging the need of making reference to a pre-established identity or identification, the weaker is the subject that is expressing it. The weaker is the subject that is expressing it. As it is in case, for instance, in adolescent, when we see you know, adolescents that are uh, in need of separating from their own uh, you know, family, very easily embracing you know, group identification that allow them to you know, uh, fabricate a sort of identification faced to their own subjective vulnerability. So um, a, a vulnerable subject finds his own su support in the group. And Freud has shown that putting a person, a thing, or an ideology at the place of idea, of the idea, fosters the libidinal ties among the members and strengthens the feeling of belonging. As we said yesterday, the results of this uh, you know, uh, identification to the group is uh, very often submission, homogenization, normativization, as uh, Dr. Eisenstein pointed out yesterday, main, main significant issue that is de-responsabilization. That is to say, giving up you know, one's own responsibility, subjective responsibility. Therefore, I would say to try to address, uh, you know, um, uh, the question of, uh, uh, you know, when is it in a certain historical moment uh, uh, certain, you know, uh, acting out, as you were pointing out, occur. I would say that the more the symbolic contest is lacking, and we go back to the question that. Uh, Dr. Menman pointed out yesterday, you know, the more there is lack of recognition, of social integration, of education, on uh, affective, the more there is affective isolation, segregation, marginalization, hmm? and the more unstable, obviously, is the subjective image, right? And the ego responds to this instability with a defensive rigidity, Dr. Melmans called it virility yesterday, I would, I would call it a paranoic turgidity, which very easily leads to aggressivity, violence, and self-destruction. As Lacan taught us, and I think that this is a very important point to underline, you know, uh, hatred is triggered is triggered by the very reaction of the ego vis-a-vis -vis its own alienation, vis-a-vis -vis the alienation that constitutes itself, right? So it's an internal sub, you know, process. I just want to say that, uh, just another point that I think that is important because uh, uh, it brings back something that uh, uh, Claude discussed <laughs> yesterday. Uh, leaders take advantage of the individual weaknesses, obviously to reinforce the group's cohesion and to obtain the submissions of the members. 
But uh, this submission, though, and I think that as psychoanalysts, we cannot, uh, uh, you know, not take this into account, relies on manipulating the libidinal drives. This is a point, right? Uh, which allows uh, to roam free these drives in the service of a common ideology. For instance, whether the individual is rewarded or gratifies, in this way, boasting his uh, narcissism, or allow him to kill, to rape, to dominate, to humiliate. That is to say, the group and the leaders of the group allow the you know, members of the group to satisfy what Freud called the murder lust. Right? which I think it's a very important concept that Freud offered us, that is not the same as the todestrib. Right? Yesterday we discussed about uh, the uh, la pulsion de mort, uh, the uh, death drives, and uh, we saw how, well, Freud spoke extensively about it, you know, how the drives are by definitions, you know, fused, we have libidinal and death drive fused to date, and uh, that uh, their fusion, it's, uh, uh, it's at work, uh, not in our uh, daily life, in our you know, uh, processing, as well as in uh, our uh, uh, relation to the social bonding. I think that it's, uh, it's but it's, it's worth it to distinguish, you know, the, the, the concept of murder lust, which is something different from that of uh, um, death drives, because it brings about the murder lust is just the, the last, the pleasure, the jouissance of killing, right? Which begins about precisely what uh, uh, Claude was uh, pointing out yesterday. That is to say, you know, the question of the jouissance that is unleashed and that we see unleashed in, unfortunately, every week in one some kind of mass uh, murdering you know, going on. So I think that it's worth it for us to, to work on this difference. I also want to, uh, another point I want to make is that, uh, um, you know, I would like to, it's, it's definitely true that we cannot come uh, up with a definition of a notion of nationalism. But I think that is worth it, though, to try to define the origins of these terms, right? Because this will allow us, in a sense, to you know, use a vocabulary in a certain manner that maybe is clarifying. Because uh, um, you know, the notion of nation a modern nation is born, as I was saying before, with you know, a certain new conceptualization of the state. By nation, we mean a cultural community of territorial relationship of kinship, right? A state, instead, designates a structure that exercises a certain power of sovereignty on a given territory, through particular institution. So the two concepts do not overlap, nation and state, right? Because one is uh, uh, you know, a cultural concept, and the other one is a legislative concept. They are two different concepts. On the other hand, instead, nationalism, the concept of nationalism, you know, denotates 
an ideology. And actually, nationalism is a pretty recent concept. If you think about, uh, you know, the, for instance, uh, the, 19, the 1808, you know, fixed the declaration on, uh, uh, you know, the reden on the Deutsche Nation, that uh, nation, right? But it's an ideology that presupposes, by definition, an opposition between one nation and the other, and supports a single systematic vision that does not tolerate difference. So in a sense, there is nothing that is farther from the notion, from the notion of nation, because nation is a community in kinship, and therefore a community in difference, right? than the notion of nationalism, right? So here we have a paradox, right? And in fact, you know, the very appeal to nationalism very often leads to destroying the cultural identity of a nation. We saw this, obviously, in Germany, where, you know, the very you know, plurality of the culture, of the, the quality of uh, the German, uh, uh, you know, um, identity, identity, cultural identity, was completely destroyed, you know, during Nazism, right? And it's the same thing, in a sense, of what is happening today in certain, you know, in this attack that, uh, you know, the ISIS state, and by the way, I mean, uh, I think that we have to pay a little bit of attention here on uh, the vicissitudes of uh, the name uh, Isis, Isis, etc. That is to say, the name that uh, Ash attributes to itself because uh, it's a name that has been, you know, progressively modified over the last uh, six years, seven years, and that is a name that constantly makes reference to the notion of state, right? And, uh, you know, obviously, of, of, a, of an idea of a, an absolute, absolute state, which characteristic is precisely to denationalize, denationalize the nations that are conquered. That is to say, to destroy the uh, symbolic inheritance of this culture, right? But including their own culture, right? They are calling their own culture, their own history of one's own culture. I think that is very important because there is a, an aspect that I think we, we cannot not take into account regarding what happened in Paris, right, in this respect. Because uh, um, I could not not, I mean, I, the question that yesterday was raised and uh, uh, why is it that the issue, what happened in Paris struck the world differently in a sense than uh, all the, you know, mass murderings that are occurring, uh, you know, at the same time around the world. I think that there is a re one reason that has not been mentioned that has to do precisely with the fact that this occurs in France, that is to say in a country that uh, had the French Revolution and had instituted a state organized on the rights of men, right? I think that we cannot think a fundamentalism, you know, extrapolated from, as you were pointing out, the history, the modern history of industrialization, 
you know, um, colonization, definitely, and uh, um, globalization, all the points that you pointed out. But we cannot, you know, um, not take into account the fact that, that uh, uh, you know, uh, the, I can put it, the, the ideal of a state that is proposed by ISIS is precisely opposite to the state that has been defended with the French Revolution in France. That is to say, there is an opposition on the notion of state that is a stake here, right? So, and, but I want, in this respect, I want to say that obviously the state of the rights of men and uh, that affects, affects, obviously, the democracy, the Western democracy, you know, is not, uh, uh, is not, not affecting also, you know, the Eastern one, right? So as I was uh, saying at the beginning, you know, is a discourse that is already taking place within the very states that are fighting against it. Just, uh, I would like just to, can I say one more thing? One. Okay, just one more thing. I will return on certain considerations that I would say are constructive consideration, but in order to, to do that, I will return in the discussion, I just want to say one thing regarding with one women, right? Because uh, uh, it's relevant that uh, all a form of fundamentalism, fundamentalism, you know, and from different cultures, uh, they target women, right? I mean, it's very clear in uh, evangelic fundamentalism, in the history of evangelic fundamentalism in the United States. Uh, we should not forget that uh, fundamentalism, the very word, comes from the foundation of faith that were, uh, you know, uh, spelled out and written by the Baptist Church in the United States in, you know, in the 1915, 16th, right? And, uh, um, but, you know, uh, they, um, they express uh, a, a common target that is uh, women. So I think that uh, this leads us back to the question of um, hatred, as uh, Lacan taught us, as the passion that is the closest to the very, Lacan would say, existence, let's say in English, division of the subject of language. And that is precisely in response to such a division that it expresses itself. It's not accident that Freud makes the refusal of femininity, the key factors of resistance of the, job, of the subject against his own truth, her own truth, regardless one's own sex, hmm? is the refusal of femininity. Obviously, and I want to stop on this, this implies a certain confrontation with one's own subjective difference that is, uh, you know, for many unbearable, right? So I would say that uh, the cult of the one that we see manifested today in many forms of recurrence to nationalism 
or uh, to uh, certain ideologies, you know, uh, it's in fact uh, you know a fetishization of a cult of the one, hmm? and that is the based on the denial of one's own subjective existence. Okay. Thank you, Paula. <laughs> Thank you, Paola, for your brilliant uh, communication. Very briefly, three remarks. You speak about nationalism and patriotism. There is a reference in this uh, gap. The General de Gaulle, he wrote in his memories, there is a big difference between nationalism and patriotism. And he said, nationalism is if we love the earth, the territory, the traditions. And nationalism is if you exclude the differences. It means who is not inside this is outside. However, the culture of De Gaulle was some thinkers like Barès. And Barres considers that we have to love the territories. And from these ideas are coming also the bad nationalism. It means there is a contradiction. Absolutely. Secondly, you speak about cultural education and cultural identification. How could you explain that inside a family, one brother could be a good man and one is a murderer? And other consequence, Melman said yesterday that the, the women are not abroad, not stranger. It means there is some universality. How do you explain that today the murderer could be also woman? It's a, this is new. And the third, third uh, remark, you say that people need to be recognized to stop the alienation. Do you think that it's possible to include Muslim culture in our global culture and civilization? Should I reply now? Mm -hmm. If you think briefly well, and after. So I want to say, number one, then, uh, there is a psychoanalytic con uh, a concept that is the, con the, con the concept of the operation of identification, which by definition is both uh, uh, structural and singular. There is no such a thing as uh, identity. For instance, two brothers within the same family, they may share a certain you know, cultural background, but they occupy a different symbolic place within the family. So therefore, there is no uh, sameness here. Each individual is, by definition, unique, even though belongs, by definition, to a symbolic order. But this, by definition, implies difference. So there is not sameness in this concept. So you can have two brothers of the same family behaving in ways or having developing one's own identification in radically different manner. This depends of the dialectic of their relation with their own caretakers, which does could change radically. 
the question, uh, what was the question of uh, uh, the woman? The, the woman. You know, uh, <coughs> I'm in total agreement with the, uh, Dr. Melman. You know, it's uh, the radical other, and is what I'm saying is Freud himself that when brings about the notion of the refusal of femininity, is bringing about <coughs> the notion of <coughs> sorry. The subjective refusal vis-a-vis -vis its own alterity, the very alterity that inhabits it. And uh, regarding the question of, you know, I can put it, this, this implies that women can be equally in denial of their femininity than men. There is no problem regarding this. Uh, Lacan has uh, explained to us uh, thoroughly how the subject position within sexuation is a particular choice, and, a, and any subject can occupy either a male or a female position. You know, so it's a, it's a, <clears throat> it's not a question of the gender. What is at stake here? So any kind of uh, uh, you know woman may decide to embrace, embrace the logic of the one. A viral, and you know the notion of virility, no, that, or I would say, a, a, you know, a phallic ideology, and you know, behave in that direction. And to conclude with cultural <coughs> Muslim culture to recognize. I don't know. I don't know what is the question. So to speak, this is a very complicated question. I don't think. That, I think that there is a big mistake in uh, thinking that the masculine culture is a one. It's like saying the Western culture is a one, or Christianism is a one, or uh, Judaism is a one. I don't think that this is the case at all. I think that uh, you know, when we speak about uh, the Muslim culture, we are speaking about uh, a variety of approach vis-a-vis -a, -vis a certain um, cultural identification and a certain religious identification. We know that there are certain characteristics of, uh, of Islams that dif dif differentiate the Islamic religions from the other form of monotheism. And I think that Dr. Melman spoke yesterday about the fundamental one, that is to say the direct idea of a text dictated by God, but there are others that I think that are, uh, number one, uh, since the very beginning, within the Islamic tradition, the religious Islamic tradition, there's been a, you know, there's been a, a conflict between two different inheritance vis-a-vis -vis the text and the word of God. That is to say, the Sunni and the Shiites. So very early on, after 50, 60 years of the existence of the Muslims, you know, religion, they had already conflicts among themselves. So it, we can, it, it, there is no possibility of treated as a one, and I personally think that the Muslim um, cultural tradition is already, you know, giving us lots of very positive things that we are including within our own reflection and reasoning. For instance, in the world of art. Thank you. We will uh, take questions after, but now it's time for the communication of Pierre de Sénarclan, who is professor in international relations 
in university in Swiss. Pierre. Thank you, Emile. In order to follow the spirit of Elix and the instruction of Edward Narcisson, I will be as short as possible in order to stimulate a debate among ourselves, which so far has been a little bit lacking. The nation has been defined by Benedict Anderson, thank you, as an imagined community. The members of this community do not know each other. They are, however, convinced that they share some common feelings. They are not disputing their collective identity. This feeling of solidarity, the belief systems that goes with it, has therefore an affective dimension. It is obviously an illusion, as the nation is by definition a very large group composed of individuals who do not have a common social background and do not have common interests. Historians and sociologists like to explain this illusion by saying that it is constructed, constructed by the states, constructed by the elites, and of course there is a grain of truth in this reality. You cannot separate the nation, the construction of the modern nations, without referring to the history of the state and also to the history of wars among states. But this notion of construction, I think, is a little bit uh, too simple. Obviously, the masses participate in or even interiorize the nation. It's not only something which is promoted by elites or by the government propaganda. From 1914 to 1918, every day some 2,000 soldiers in France died in the battle. And you had an equivalent numbers on the German side. In Verdun, which lasted six months, a soldier was dying every second. So you cannot explain that without referring to this nationalist illusion. And it has been largely shared by large, very large group of uh, people. And who, those who did not share this feeling were outside uh, this type of history. One has to read uh, Zweig, the, the uh, Die Welt von Gestern, who shows the difficulty of being outside this uh, uh, terrible uh, pressure. In other words, 
people accept to die for the nation, mourir pour la patrie, as they used to say in France. I am, I am not making any distinction between nationalism and patriotism on this matter. The idea of the nation is modern, that's for sure. It is associated with the invention of a new collective identity. The nobility of the Ancien Régime was obsessed by his blue blood, by his Quartier de Noblesse, I don't know how you translate that. The myth, the illusion of the nation has been to give blue blood to every citizen. That is to say to every individual being part of the nation. The repertoire of fantasies inherent to the nationalist discourse is fairly consistent. It always comprises recurring emotional themes that express the pursuit of individual and communitarian narcissistic needs, such as a strong affirmation of a collective identity, a quest for dignity, a sense of superiority over other people. People take pride in the nation to compensate for the individual and collective vulnerability. Nationalists continuously affirm a touchy defense of their territorial and symbolic frontiers. They envisage the nation as a spiritual creator that provides them with an identity, a purpose, a glorious genealogy, and a feeling of self-esteem. In their nationalist myth, intellectuals and politicians develop narratives about their nation's unique historical destiny, inspired and guided by the providence, while incarnating the highest values of civilization. Indeed, we will never fully understand nationalism, or even ethno-nationalism for that matter, if we do not understand the conscious and unconscious fantasy and desires which push individuals and groups to invest in this imagined community. Historically, cities have been a fertile ground for nationalism. It has developed, nationalism has developed within large groups within crowd. And the, what Freud said in uh, 1920 about crowd and group behavior is absolutely pertinent to understand uh, nationalism. And in nationalism, you have always a feeling of fraternity and the erection of a leader who has to lead and to replace the, the ego ideal of every uh, individual who is part of this community. Historically, nationalism has been closely associated with socio-economic 
and political insecurity. Helplessness at the individual and collective level has been a fertile ground for nationalist ideology. Nationalist ideology has flourished in times of socio-economic crisis, in time of rapid structural transformation, as a way to overcome feeling of collective insecurity. This was particularly true in Europe over the later part of the 19th century. This was a period characterized by rapid urbanization, critical change in production pattern, and socioeconomic recession, which affected people from all walk of life, not only the working class and small-scale artisans, but also the elites. Following World War I, the crisis of political institutions, the breakdown of socio-cultural tradition, and the collapse of European economy favored the development of fanatical ideology, which drew their support from social categories that had been most affected by unemployment, marginalization, and the loss of social status. It is worth noting in this context that na nation states are not the only type of imagined community. The same holds true for clans, for tribe, for religious groups, and any other form of close community links, such as sects, which defend their own particular social cultural identity in the pursuit of their interest and desire. Ethnicity is a collective identity based on culture and history. It is one possible pattern of group allegiance. It can be seen as a form of attach attachment closely related to feeling of kinship. And as a matter of fact, you had two different expressions of nationalism in the 19th century for different historical reasons, which I do, don't want to explain. You had, a, uh, I would say, a, a notion, a more political notion of the nation, like the French tried to defend it, or a more cultural one, which was a more Germanic expression, which is, of course, linked to a different uh, East environment and political historical setting. As an heir of enlightenment, Freud counted on education which he associated with the progress of reason. Unfortunately, progress in education has not guaranteed this evolution. Its advancement in liberal democracies has not ampered recurrent outpouring of demagoguery, populism, and even mass paranoia. Communication networks and media tend even to exacerbate this trend. Elections are often influenced by weird individuals who overtly stimulate shocking and aggressive behavior which undermines the moral and political foundation of democracy. 
education can also be, become a source of frustration, especially in developing countries when states do not succeed in providing adequate careers opportunity. And this failure, failure, failure favors the advance of alienated and downgraded intellectuals. And as a matter of fact, the leaders and militants of fanatical political and religious movements belong often to these categories of individuals. Present-day socio-economic and political condition breeds insecurity for a large number of people. All the more so that it is associated with dramatic socio-cultural changes. This explains the resurgence of ethno-nationalism in Europe, as well as in the southern hemisphere. The dramatic social polarization in the United States might also explain partly the orientation of the Republican Party, polarization which goes with the erosion of the middle class and uh, the extreme socio-economic disparity. In other words, we will have to live with fanatical movements of different kind if we fail to build new institutions, new states, and not only the states, but also new intergovernmental institutions capable of ensuring a better social welfare. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, Pierre de Senart Clubs, for this very informed contribution. And uh, briefly, two remarks. You said that in nationalistic terms, uh, national love is a female figure. But in civilization terms, the symbolic law is coming from the father. How you explain this contradiction between the female figure and the father symbolic law? And second thing, you say that in every nationalism, there is a leader, a leader who controlled the people. You, you are informed of uh, science politics and also of psychoanalyst. But uh, in Moses, he was the leader. But Freud explains that he his false origin in racial terms is a gauge to avoid the nationalism. Do you... I don't follow that. En français, le leader Moïse guide le peuple, son origine étrangère est une protection contre le nationalisme. Est-ce que vous partagez cette chose-là C'est-à-dire qu'un leader qui vient non pas de la pureté raciale, mais qui vient d'ailleurs, qui est étranger au peuple qui va guider, 
est une garantie contre le nationalisme. Apparently, Hitler was Austrian-born, and this was not quite a good guarantee of being of not being accepted in Germany. So I don't think that uh, uh, I have difficulty in the following. Uh, It's the same people, Austrian and German. I mean, not in terms of, uh, they have different history, you see. And um, uh, Hitler came from a social background, from a historical environment, which was very, very, very different from the German elites. And this has also uh, been something very shocking for the German Uh, establishment at the time, who had uh, difficulty in adapting immediately to this new environment. But in relation to the uh, to the uh, nas uh, nation as a community associated with the with a woman, with the mother, with uh, Jeanne d'Arc in France. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's not only it's not the case, because in, in, in time of war, the leader is invested as, the, as really the one who, in, who, who, who represents nation and all these war criminals that you have on the place of, uh, um, of uh, French city, Foch, Clemenceau, and all these people uh, were considered as a father of uh, the French nation. Uh, and um, they were associated with the uh, uh, figure of the incarnation of the nation. So it's very divided. You have. Uh, you, you have a fantasy about the nation which is something which, uh, in which you could, you could completely rely on. You could uh, espouse uh, this maternal uh, representation of the nation. So something, in a, in a way, pre-Edipian. Uh, but I mean, when the nation takes arms, It's need a leader, and the leader is generally a man. Okay, time for questions. Uh, maybe we stop about uh, five, ten, five, ten minutes so people can go to the bathroom, and then okay. we have a final. Bye -bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.